Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I am delighted to be joined today by a wonderful colleague and good friend, Alice Albright, who is the CEO of the Global Partnership for Education, GPE. Alice and I have worked together closely for the seven years I have been the chair of the board of GPE, which is the only global partnership and global fund dedicated to helping children in lower income countries get a quality education so they can unlock their potential and contribute to building a better world. Alice, it's terrific to have this opportunity to talk today, and I want to start at the very beginning. You grew up surrounded by female energy. Your mother, Madeline, is a feminist icon, having been the first woman to serve as the Secretary of State of the US. You have a twin sister and a younger sister. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? So I grew up in a very, what I would call, go-girl environment. We went to all-girls school, all three of us, from about the age of eight through when we graduated to go to college. And that involved lots of you know sports and teams and debate clubs and fantastic women teachers, you know, science and math and physics and experiments. We also went to a wonderful all-girls summer camp which involved lots of horses and jumping off of cliffs with ropes and climbing mountains and teams. So there was never a question in our mind growing up that we could do whatever we wanted. And we had also uh, incredibly supportive parents and also grew up having grown up in Washington in a, in a world of you couldn't avoid the world. So the Saturday afternoon activity would be going to demonstrate against the Vietnam War with my dad. And my mother was actually involved in one of the targets of the Watergate break-in. But from a gender perspective, you know, we grew up very much in a you-go-girl environment, and it was never a question that we could do whatever we wanted. And when then was the first moment that you said to yourself, um, I think I'm being treated differently just because I'm a girl? It wasn't until actually much later when I started working, you know, it started sort of occurring to me, you know, in finance, you know, almost to the sort of part of the way in that it was a boys club and, you know, the boys would go out drinking, the boys would talk about sports. I would be asked who's taking care of your children. And, you know, I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. So it was, it was quite a bit later, but I didn't feel like any of that in school or in college. 
Well, I want to come now, even though it's sort of out of time order, to your family. You've got a husband and two boys, big boys, in the sense that they both tower over you physically, I understand, and they're college-age kids. So it seems to me you had a childhood with a lot of you-go-girl, and then you've spent a few decades now in an all-male household except for you. What's the contrast like? Well, I have to say that between my dad and my hubby, Greg, nobody could have better cheerleaders than the two of them. And they both grew up in families with very strong women. So my father's, I think it was his great aunt, Sissy Patterson, and his aunt both started national newspapers on their own and became very prominent in newspaper publishing. His great aunt left her marriage to a Polish count after a few years and decided to say that was enough. I didn't like that. She moved to Wyoming and took up with a cow thief. And it was lots of mountains and guns and cows and drinking and poker. And my grandmother got her pilot's license when she was 16. And then on my mother's side of the family, they escaped World War II and the communists. They were refugees twice and were hardened by that. So we grew up in an environment of very strong women. And then on my husband's side, his, his mother, who passed away a couple of years ago, was also a very strong sort of feminist type and worked in Planned Parenthood, for example, here in, in the States. And so through across both of those times, there was never any expectation that I would take on, or my sisters would take on sort of the girly roles That's very much the case in our family now. You know, when I threaten to cook dinner, the boys say, oh, please don't. Can't you order? Because we know you can't cook. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So, you know, very supportive environments. With my own family now, it's a very boy family. There's lots of, you know, boats and dogs and sports and screaming and yelling, but it's a great deal of fun. But they've never, ever not been supportive of my career. They do worry about me when I travel and have a sort of a practice that whenever anyone goes someplace, they have to send a text that they landed there properly. But there's been a, both in my growing up period and my current period, an enormous regard for work go out and work and do something important in the world. And both of my parents fostered that in my sisters and me. And it goes without saying that that's what my boys have started doing and Greg. So very supportive environment all around. And what has it been like to have such a famous mum? She's sort of the best mom ever. And, you know, in many ways, our sort of immediate relationship with her is not all that different from anybody else's relationship with her mother. She worries about us all the time. She still calls us each every day to find out how we're doing and what is she buying for Christmas presents for the boys and are we coming on time for Thanksgiving and things like that. But she's she is absolutely the best role model. And the thing that she really taught us is that you can be a working person and a mom at the same time. And it is somebody else's problem if they don't accept that. And so when she started working in the Senate, she told her staff, if the girls call me, find me. And she told the same thing to the White House operators when she worked for President Carter. And she told the same thing to the State Department operators when she was Secretary of State. And we always knew we could get her. And what I took away from that was that as working moms, we have to create a workplace where parents feel as if they can properly equip their work responsibilities and their parent responsibilities. And one of the things that 
was very important to me when I started out as CEO of GPE was that I decided I wanted to create a work environment where moms felt comfortable. You know, so I regularly say to the staff, if I ever hear that somebody's decided to skip a parent-teacher meeting or skip a game or skip a play, I'm going to be un- unhappy about it because you should go do that stuff and we can find you if we need to get you. So what my mom really taught me was that you can do both perfectly well and you shouldn't have to compromise and that it's somebody else's problem if they don't want you to be a parent at the same time that you're a working person. In talking about your world of work, you studied international finance and your early career you spent in companies that are household names. I'm thinking of Citibank and JP Morgan. Everybody's sort of heard of them. What drew you to that work? Well, when I graduated from college, the only thought that I'd had about my career at the time was that I wanted to do something international, which of course wasn't very useful because it doesn't really lead to a job. And so I went immediately to graduate school to the International Affairs School at Columbia. And I quickly sort of got the sense that I had to learn a trade. I had to learn a skill of some kind. So I picked finance because I was very attracted by the numbers. And I loved accounting. I loved economics. And I said, all right, I'm going to try this. I'm sitting here in the middle of New York City. This is Wall Street. I'm going to try finance. So I did about a third of my graduate school degree at the business school at Columbia, studying all the finance and accounting courses and then the rest of it at the International Affairs School. And I was very attracted by the numbers. And I still, to this day, believe that being able to unravel financial statements of organizations is vitally important. In fact, I said to somebody yesterday that one of the ways that I got a sense of some of the challenges that one of our neighbors in the education sector is facing, and I won't name names, is I said I read their financial statements and it told me what was going on. So it's a skill that has not only served me well in Wall Street, but it really actually has served me very well in the jobs that I've had since Wall Street, because so much of the challenge that the global health world faces and that the education world faces is about having the right kind of money. That's certainly true. Can I take you back to those days in finance? So this was in the late 1980s that you were in this environment. I mean, the finance industry today is still very gendered, particularly at the top. How did you find it? And did you find some women role models, some women mentors who helped you navigate that early part of your career? It was definitely gendered and it is gendered. And there is no doubt If you're one of the boys and you go out drinking after work and talk about sports, you know, you're sort of one of the insiders. And if you don't do that, you're not. And in fact, one of the, I was almost laughing when I read it, one of the modules that we've taken on unconscious bias shows women being excluded from things based on not being prepared to go out drinking with the boys after work. So that was true in the 80s, it was true in the 90s, and it is still true today. Two mentors really stand out. There was a woman who I worked for at City Court named Barbara, who was very cool, smoked cigarettes, and told the traders to go to hell when she uh, didn't like the transactions that they were proposing to her. And then at my next job, there's a woman named Jenna, who was one of the chief credit officers, who basically outsmarted everybody and asked everybody the most difficult question about the transactions that they wanted to do, and they couldn't answer them. And I thought, hmm, I like her. And then I chose a pathway within finance to become a credit officer. And I became one of the chief credit officers at at JP Morgan, the senior credit officers. And, you know, it, it really appealed to me because it was very 
numbers-based, intellectual-based, and it was very substance-based. But it did put me in conflict with a lot of the men. I sat on the trading floor at JP Morgan, and there was one guy who came to me and said, I want to do this trade with an Enron entity in Africa. Enron. And I said, so tell me about it, because my job was to approve it. And he told me about it, and it was a bunch of nonsense. And I said, forget it. And he got all mad. And I said, well, go fine, go escalate it. But my job is to look at these things. And my answer is no. And then another guy came to me and said, I want to do this trade with this bank in Russia. And they had what he called US GAAP style financial statements. And I said, what does the word style mean? Is it US GAAP, which is our financial standards, or is it not? He said, I don't know. And I said, well, forget it. There's no such thing as style financial statements. He got all mad. You know, I just stuck to my guns and I said, you know, my job is to look at these things properly. And my answer is no. I figured out a way to use numbers and analytics and sticking to my guns to sort of progress. And I became one of the senior credit people at JP Morgan accordingly. In 2001, you stepped out of that world and you went to work for the Global Vaccine Alliance, Garvey, the mission of which is to make sure that the poor do not miss out on life-saving vaccines. And of course, that's a mission that's got new resonance today in the world of COVID-19. What made you decide to step into this world of development? And did your friends say, Alice, what on earth are you doing? You've got a banking career. It's high-powered. It's prestigious. Why would you go to Garvey? It was an interesting moment and in some ways sort of an existential moment in my career. And it wasn't so much based on gender as it was based on values. So I was in private equity, which is within the finance world, one of the sort of subcultures of it that is probably most prone to the drinking and sports insider thing. But I, I sort of woke up one morning and I thought, you know, I'm not sure that the people around me and I have the same value structure. And when I was at the previous parts of my banking career, there was some degree of nobility associated with it. And that we were trying to get money to countries that were emerging from you know, various political transitions coming out of apartheid, coming out of the former Soviet Union and things like that, and helping JP Morgan navigate the risk issues around that, which was one of the jobs that I had. In private equity, there was much less nobility. And it began to really occur to me that my desire for purpose really did not have a home in that environment. So I said, okay, I really think that I should move on. So I started looking at jobs in the nonprofit sector and somebody said, well, there's this interesting looking startup thing that's sort of funded by the Gates Foundation and it's doing vaccines and they're looking for a CFO. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to type out a resume and a cover letter and, you know, send it off and, you know, who knows. And then I started doing some research about it. It looked very interesting. In the cover letter I wrote, I said, I know a fair amount about finance. I don't know anything about medicine, but I can learn. I'd love to join you. They said, great. And it turned out to be an absolute adventure. And what really became very clear to me, and we now are seeing this, is that the reason why vaccines were not being made more readily available, and these were vaccines that existed, not ones that were still on the sort of R&D table in the pharma companies, was that the pharma companies looked at the whole developing world and they said, well, we have no idea how big the market is. And more so, we don't know where the money's going to come from. As we know from the aid world, the money comes in drips and drips and drips and drips, and it's high one year, low one year. It's very volatile. So the pharma companies look at that and they say, well, why should we sell them anything? We don't know if they have the money to pay for it. 
So a combination of the UK government and the Gates Foundation was looking around for somebody prepared to fix that problem in the global health world. And apparently they called several of our you know, compadres and said, would you be interested in working on this bond thing with us? And apparently other organizations said, eh, not interested. And I said, give me an hour, I'm going to call you back. And I started thinking about it and drawing diagrams about how it could work. And I called our lawyer who I had hired because I wanted to have an innovation partner with me. I said, so I think this is how this could work. What do you think? And he said, yeah, I think you're right. So I called this person back and I said, sure, we'll try. (laughs) We'd be happy to try. And then it took us about three years to get all the bits and pieces in place. But what it did was it gave Gavi a balance sheet, which is size and heft and access to money. It was sort of a credit card in a sense. That's the way to understand it, where they could go and buy vaccines with lots of money in their pocket to be able to then go say to the pharma companies, we've got money. We know how big the market is. Come sell it to us cheaper. And the public policy rationale for that is that the more you can, and we're seeing this now, the more you can get the vaccines out faster, the more likely it is you're going to reach herd immunity faster. And you can measure the extra little cost of borrowing money in that manner against the cost of not having herd immunity. And we connected those things very, very, very directly. And we monitored the cost of borrowing money in that way against what it would be if the underlying governments that gave us the capital for it would borrow money on our own. It was just a tiny bit more expensive, but we got to herd immunity a lot faster. And so it was a defining organizational thing for Gavi. Even though it took two, three years to get it done, we launched it in November 2006, it defined them and put, it on, put them on the map. And so as an example of using fairly standard kind of finance instinct to make something happen for an organization. Because it didn't take long to figure out that it was a no-brainer. It took me a few minutes like, yeah, of course we'll do this. But it was obvious. Obvious if you've got the skills. And so that kind of incredible innovation, thinking about financial flows, uh, how people can invest and how you can use governments to help support an organization like Garvey in a different way. It certainly did change our world. So congratulations on that. From Garvey, you went to work in the Export and Import Bank of the US under the Obama administration. And once again, that was combining your financial skills with doing global good. But in February 2013, you joined GPE as CEO. Why move to education? I was approached by the former chair of the board, Carol Bellamy, to ask if I would like to apply for the job. And she knew me from Gavi days. And I was actually surprised that she called me because I was sort of a disruptor at that point. And I think I made her angry from time to time when she was the chair of UNICEF, but didn't cause too many problems. But uh, she called me and the way that she presented it was that we had done a very good job at Gavi making it a disruptor relative to the level of progress at the time in the vaccine world. And that the GPE board wanted the same pathway for it you know, the standards in education were not coming along. People were getting frustrated that progress was not faster. Would I come along and lead it and make it a big, credible, performance-oriented, better-financed organization? And I said, sure, but, you know, you have to realize from my resume that I don't have a lot of technical background in education other than being a mother of two boys. And she said, no problem. And I said, well, that's fine with me. I can read a lot. So I spent a lot of the time early on in GPE 
traveling and really trying to understand the problem. And we now, as you know, have made a lot of progress in putting GPE on the map as a disruptor. But we are also going to become a standard setter and set the standards for how uh, the sector is to think about the problem going forward. And so it was that same disruptor into standard setter pathway that really interested me. And it's been an, an absolute wild ride adventure ever since. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And on that disruptor standard setting pathway, a big thing that's happened whilst we've been working together at GPE is the world moved in 2015 to embrace the sustainable development goals. So 17 goals to guide global development to 2030 education's goal number four. And for the first time, an emphasis was put on education quality. Before that, it had all been about access to schools, which of course is vitally important. But then the penny dropped that, yes, if kids are in school, that's great, but they've got to be in school and learning. And so you have to focus on the quality too. How much do you think we've managed to achieve as a global community on that shift to quality? And how's GPE contributing to all of that? So I think that we've achieved some, but not enough. And what we have achieved is actually under threat because of the pandemic. I think that the awareness of the quality agenda has definitely advanced and the tools around achieving it have definitely become more plentiful. You are seeing countries leaning into learning assessments, leaning into teacher quality. Of course, the other part of the agenda that we've picked up is the equity agenda as well, which is also critical. I mean, we can't be in a world where education is only a rich person's luxury, whether or not it's in the developed countries or in the developing countries. So we've made some progress, but not enough. And I think that in, in particular around the challenges facing girls' education, which, which you and I are both very devoted to, there's also all kinds of very complicated societal issues around the edges that, that really get in the way. GPE, I think, has made a significant contribution, and its contribution is that we need to think about the problem as a systems-based problem that deserves a systems-based solution. So what do I mean by that? It's sort of a wonky term, but when you travel, and I've now traveled a fair amount, you see that school systems need buildings, teachers, money, textbooks, internet, computers, school meals, you know, sanitation, hygiene, they need all of it. Unless you can help a country fix all of it, you're not going to sustainably fix any of it. And there are an awful lot of empty school buildings around the world. And that's evidence of a little piece as opposed to fixing it in a systems-based fashion. So while I always like to try to remain quite humble about the work that GPE has done, and we by no means have gotten the job done, I think that what we have pioneered is the systems approach, and we've 
organized all of the different elements of GP's platform around that, be it how we do grants, how we bring into place the knowledge products, how we work with countries uh, very directly, how we bring evidence to bear. So the whole package adds up to working on systems. And if you look at where GPE was when I started in 2013 versus where it is now, we have really engineered and perfected that whole approach. And I'm very excited about our new strategic plan because I think it puts us in a whole different place around that. And then, you know, this is one of the reasons why I I and you and others are sort of knocking themselves out to go raise $5 billion right now to help us finance it. For those who aren't familiar with GPE, what kind of countries does GPE work in and sort of where in the world are those countries? Well, the eligibility says up to 90 countries and territories right now, about 65 or 70 have taken us up on the offer and they are the lowest income countries. So it's about two thirds of it's Africa. Then the rest of it is either some countries in Central America and the Caribbean and Haiti, or it's Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Cambodia, Laos, and the Pacific Islands, Papua New Guinea. But it's, it is the lowest income countries and it is the most challenging countries. So you see, you know, the Sahel, the Central African Republic, Somalia, Haiti, Yemen. And it's the countries that really are in the most difficult straits in terms of their ability to provide education sustainably and equitably and with quality to their children. And when we talk about that global footprint, I think people would recognise that in many of those places, much needs to be done on gender equality and girls' education. I mean, much needs to be done on gender equality right around the world, but girls' education has to be a particular focus. Now, you and I share an absolute passion for girls' education because I think we're both absolutely convinced that if you educate a girl, you unleash a future leader who could change the world. Why is girls' education so important to you and to the work of GPE? When you look at the the things that are holding back progress on education and, frankly, the development agenda as a whole, it is the fact that we are not educating girls because of what, as you've rightly said, the unleashing factor. We are leaving half of the world's talent on the table and off to the side. It's just unconscionable that we're doing that. And it's very clear that there is this unlocking effect. So if you have an educated girl, they will take their children to get immunized. They will put their children in school. They will begin to earn a living. They'll begin to participate in the sort of democratic processes of their community. They may even become a teacher themselves. They may contribute to the work of the school in some way. And you can just see that there's this ripple effect that goes on and on and on relative to girls that are kept at home and not allowed to go out and do anything. So it is the most underused resource in the world in terms of sparking change in many, many ways. The other thing is is somewhat more personal, which is a question of fairness. I often think about how darn lucky I was to go to, you know, the most prestigious girls' school in Washington, D.C. growing up where I had access to the most prestigious everything, sports, teachers, clubs, you know, you name it. And then I visited, I remember this very distinctly, I visited with some uh, high school girls in Ouagadougou and Burkina Faso a couple years ago at the Nelson Mandela High School. And all they wanted to do was be able to continue to get to their school. And they would ride their bikes 18 and 20 kilometers each way. They were afraid of getting abducted along the way. 
They had to do jobs on their way home to pay, start paying for things before they got home to help their parents. And then they had to do their homework by candlelight. And all they wanted to do was get back again to the next day. And this visual image of my school in Washington, D.C. and their school in Ouagadougou, it's simply not fair that just based on the zip code that I was born in and the zip code that they were born in, that their opportunity set is so much more limited. And they're just as smart as all the girls I went to school with, if not more. So it just deeply bothers me about the unfairness of it. Absolutely. I've talked a lot on this podcast about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on women. You're in a great position to share insights on this because you represent GPE on the G7 Gender Equality Action Council. The G7 brings together Japan, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, the US and the UK, which is hosting this year's meeting in June. The European Commission also attends. Australia has been invited as a special guest. The council you sit on has the mandate to ensure women are at the heart of the G7's Build Back Better agenda in the recovery from COVID-19. And you're sitting on a body that's got world-leading experts, scientists, people who know about vaccines, business leaders, UN representatives, human rights advocates and the like. What have you shared with the council about how the pandemic has changed opportunities for girls and what GPE and the world can do to build back better? It is an incredible group. I mean, you sort of sit there pinching yourself like, oh my gosh, how lucky am I to be with all these people? And I also had done it with the French G7 a couple of years ago. So the point that we've made is that the pandemic has really closed the window for girls in terms of opportunity and that we are deeply worried about the fact that at least 20 million girls may not ever go back to school. And what does that mean for the future? You know, we've talked a lot about the impact that the pandemic is having not only on on limiting and taking away education opportunity, but what it's having on gender-based violence, domestic violence. You know, it's had the hardest impact on having women have to leave the job market. I mean, it has really hit hard women. And we've also made the point that when you think about the levers of recovery going forward, it is education and it's educating girls. And you know, one of the points we've made is that it's, it's obvious that we live in a world where there's going to be pandemic after pandemic, climate change crisis after climate change crisis, economic dislocation after economic dislocation. And the only way to see a pathway forward in managing all of that is to have educated people and educated girls so that they can become the foundation stone of their strong communities. And the group has taken up those recommendations and the recommendations will be issued shortly. And the point that we've made, which has been accepted, is that education is the binding force that needs to come together to underlie hopefully a successful recovery across many, many dimensions. So that is the the point that Sarah Sands, who is the chairperson of the council, will make to the G7 next week, and we're very pleased about it. 
And the G7 is an important rallying point, but there's another one, and that is the Education Summit being held here in London on the 28th and 29th of July. Now, you and I are going to be personally running around London for this Education Summit. We'll be doing it together. It's being co-hosted by the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, also by the President of Kenya, and that's so important, President Kenyatta. So a donor nation, the UK, and a developing country Kenya. And the summit is the culmination of GPE's financing campaign. We use the banner, raise your hand, and we've been asking people to raise their hand around the world for education. And recently, Michelle Obama did just that. Our hope is that we will raise US $5 billion to support GPE's work over the next five years. And in addition, we're hoping to see developing countries pledge to increase their own education expenditure. Alice, I know you are currently working all the hours you humanly can on this campaign. Why is it so important? I think we find ourselves with this campaign at a moment where we're seeing a huge different pathway ahead for the developed nations of the world versus the developing nations of the world. The developed nations of the world, although perhaps at slightly different paces, will pull out of the pandemic and they will get back to some version of normal. And that's happening on the scheme of things relatively quickly. The developing nations are not. We see it not only in terms of where the COVID spikes are occurring, but the sort of more silent piece of it is the economic consequences. And what this is going to mean is that governments with whom GPE works are not going to have the resources they need to invest in public services. And who is going to get hit the hardest? Poor children who aren't in school. And who's going to get even harder hit than that are girls and children with disabilities who need to have particular outreach to go to school. So when we were planning for the campaign now about a year ago, one of the questions that I kept asking the team was, how ambitious should we be? I mean, are we mad being this ambitious given the global situation? And you know, the answer that I came up with is we have no choice but to be as ambitious as we possibly can be and shoot for the stars because so much is at risk right now. And so while, yes, it is a lot of hard work, which is in some ways quite energizing, we have no choice to go out and do the very best we can to raise as much money as we can, keep the issue on the domestic agendas of our country partners, and just insist, this goes beyond ask, it's to insist that we continue to invest in education because it is the way that we're going to recover. And it's also the way that we're going to equip the countries of the world with what they need to live in what is going to be a very uncertain future. We've just lived through how vulnerable our world is. It can be turned off like this. And so we need to finance it properly. And that's why we have to be ambitious. I know that $5 billion, on the one hand, $5 billion is a lot of money. If you compare it to the amount of global wealth, either in governments or in the private sector or what have you, it's not that much money when you think about what the actual outcome of having properly educated children is for our future. So we have to be ambitious and we're going to do everything we possibly can to get to our goals between now and the end of July. 
It's not that much money when we think about how many uh, children, 250 million children in our world today who are of school age and not in school and hundreds of millions more whose education needs to improve in quality if they're going to learn to read and write and do maths. So I absolutely agree. For listeners who are now screaming, I want to help, what can they do? Well, pick up your phone and start tweeting towards your member of parliament and say, is our government supporting education and supporting GPE to the fullest extent that you can? Because if we're not, you should. Let's create noise around this issue. This is one of the reasons why we're so delighted that Michelle Obama did the same thing yesterday when she created her her clip for us. We've got Didier Drogba, the very famous Ivorian football player. But pick up your device and start tweeting, Instagramming, etc., and make people know that you care about this and you do not want to live in a world where there are 250 million children out of school. It's simply unacceptable. Absolutely. Now, usually at this stage of the podcast, I ask my guests to respond to a fact that I read out. Today, I'm going to ask you to supply the fact, which makes it pretty easy for me, but I'm going to ask you, how many of GPE's partner countries have you visited, pre-pandemic, of course, and can you tell me about one thing that made you laugh and one thing that made you cry out of all you saw on those visits? Yes. So if I've counted correctly, I've visited 19 although a number of them multiple times. I've been to the Democratic Republic of the Congo four times, for example, and those have all been incredible visits. On the laugh and cry point, on the cry point, from time to time, when talking to ministers and others about girls' education, I often hear, well, our society just kind of works that way, and that's why girls stop going to school and why they get married early. While we have great regard for different cultures, different environments, different preferences, as a community of people who care about girls' education, we have to challenge that notion. It can't just be a societal sort of expectation. Girls want to go to school. Every girl that I've talked to wants to go to school. That's undoubtable. That's the cry point. The laugh point, there's a universalism to the understanding that school is good. So the number of times that I've met with grandmother and mother groups who have sort of attached themselves to school to help fix meals or help take care of babies, of children, of girls who are back in school, and all of them are probably illiterate themselves and not been to school themselves, they know that something good is happening in there. And there's a universalism about women wanting younger women to go to school. And I think that's very a sign of real hope and something that I think we need to foster. I agree. Absolutely. A sign of hope. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Luckily, not an enormous amount, or I haven't been made aware of it. But I certainly got the sense that the finance world was a good old boys club and you know, ultimately led me to realize that mm, maybe I should go you know, move on to something else in addition to sort of the value structure. But that's, I thought that was a disappointment. If you had all the power in the world in your hands for a moment, what's the one thing you'd change for women and girls? It's very symbolic that the Gender Equality Council is going to be speaking to the G7 at the end of next week. And there's only one person in the G7. If you 
include Mrs. Van der Leyen, two from the European Commission. So let's say two out of eight that are women and the rest of them are men. And the symbolism and the substance of that is very troubling. And while I think that women have made some progress in reaching the highest echelons of sort of global leadership, and people are still in our country kind of remark, you know, amazed that we finally have a vice president who's a woman here in the United States. It's kind of ridiculous that there aren't more women leaders. And, you know, you, you obviously are a mold breaker, and thank God. But that's what I would change. And, you know, the world would be in a better place if we had more women leaders at the highest echelons of government. You know, if you were to sort of stack up kind of leadership positions, you know, women kind of get to a point, but then they get stuck. That's bad. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see? Virginia Woolf says, the value of education is among the greatest of all human values. Alice Albright says, go Virginia. (laughs) It is because it is so empowering. Thank you so much. Terrific conversation and always lovely to see you. Thank you, Alice. Podcast of One's Own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time.